0: let's go ahead and jump into the Bible to Revelation chapter 3 and this morning we look at the sixth of the seven churches the church of Philadelphia the church of Philadelphia beginning in verse 7 and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things says he who is holy he who is true he who has the key of David He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my commandment to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which, is, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly, hold fast what the Spirit says to the churches. We come to the faithful church. The one church that Jesus finds nothing to c- condemn. They're known as the faithful church by the description in which John gives us, which Jesus alludes to or clearly articulates here for us. They persevered. They held on to his word. They did not compromise. They were not corrupt. They loved him. These are the works that are emphasized throughout the seven churches as those that God admires. I think all of us would like to immediately conclude that our church would be designated a faithful church, that we would be a Philadelphia church. And I hope that to be the case. But I know there's always room to improve. I know that there's always that moment of reality where we must allow God to search our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us, to make sure we haven't gotten off course in any way, shape, or form. We must walk humbly before our Lord. But this faithful church, the dynamic uh, open door that was presented to them is a dynamic opportunity to reach their area for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philadelphia was one of the last cities Uh, towards the east from the imperial Rome, and it was known as the gateway to the east, just as you drive through St. Louis. And of course, the big arch is there, the large arch. I've been up in that arch. Uh, It's a little scary, I have to admit. Uh, It sways quite uh, dramatically when you're up there. Did you know that the Sears Tower, which I refuse to call the Willis Tower, the Sears Tower sways 12 feet in every direction? Do you ever think about that? I take Dramamine before I go. But the gateway to the east, it was one of the premier cities. It was also known as Little Athens, for they had all the characteristics of Athens itself, but on a smaller scale. And yet amongst this city, just inundated with pagan faiths and gods, uh, with Greek wisdom With the legalism of Judaism, there was a faithful church. Small in size, most scholars believe that this term little strength indicated that it was a small church. It wasn't very large, but it was a faithful church. And as a result, God opened a door of opportunity for them. It is this door of opportunity that I am personally seeking. I want to know what God wants to do next. I want to know what's on his mind. And I want to follow him wherever he may lead, even if it's to do something completely different in the sense of how would he minister to this generation? How would he reach out to those who are far from God? How then can we disciple them more effectively to not only get saved, but to grow in their faith in Christ? That's what I'm referring to. What does God want to do in 2023? Building on the rich tradition that we have here at Calvary Chapel, that you'll see in the movie this weekend, this week, and allowing God to do the next thing. Now, I am not fearful to be led by the Holy Spirit. Many feel that, well, if you're led by the Holy Spirit, it's possible that you could then become unbiblical. No. Let me back you up there for a moment. Whatever the Spirit does is going to be in complete harmony with God's Word. So I don't have to be fearful of where the Spirit may lead us. Many churches today seem incredibly fearful of the Holy Spirit. When you look at their statements of faith, when it comes to various areas of theology, such as the Bible, such as Christ's deity, Uh, They're very clear, very specific. And then when you come to the work of the Holy Spirit, often the identity of the Holy Spirit is very clear, the third person of the Trinity. But where it becomes very vague is when they begin to articulate how the Spirit works through the church. You know, we seem to have churches that are on both sides of the extremes, One side of the extreme is that we must keep the Holy Spirit in a little box in the corner of the church, in the closet, and not let him out. The other church, the other extreme, are those people who are uh, just absolutely representing the Holy Spirit in a false manner, doing things that the Spirit of God would never lead them to do because the Word of God does not say to do those things. So I find that let's stay in the middle. Let's stay in the middle. Let's let the Holy Spirit do whatever He wants to do, knowing fully that whatever He wants to do will be according to God's Word. Right? We just have to be discerning. We have to know God's Word, and we have to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading, not only in our church, but in our personal life more specifically. You can't go wrong with the Holy Spirit. You just can't. Now, why do I say that? Because I believe that true revival will come by a move of the Spirit. It's nothing that is manufactured. It's nothing that is created. I've often wondered at those churches who advertise, Saturday at 7 o'clock, we're going to have a revival. Well, what happens if the Spirit shows up at 6? Or what happens if the Spirit shows up at 10? And the other thing, and I please want you to know that, you don't have to be in one particular place to be filled with the Spirit. God can work anywhere. Oh, I'd love to go down there and worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That would be absolutely wonderful. I'd enjoy it. However, though, I know that God is fully capable of filling us here today. Right here. Right now. With His Spirit. The Faithful Church of Philadelphia. We'll begin in verse 7. And to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia write, these things says, number one, he who is holy. Jesus now identifies himself similarly in the manner in which he did to the first five churches, describing himself in a unique way to this particular church. First, his characteristic that he exalts is his holiness. Now, the, the holiness that God is speaking of here is his separation. He has been set aside purposely for the work of God. The word holy has often been difficult to define by some Christians, but it means this, whole, W-H-O-L-E. It means all of us. God wants all of us, not just some of us. He wants all of us. He wants us holy. okay, W-H-O-L-E. He wants every bit of us. He wants everything. He wants us to surrender everything to him. He wants us to lay ourselves as a living sacrifice before him, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Jesus was set aside perfectly as one of those instruments of the Old Testament tabernacle and therefore temple was set aside specifically for the master's use. Philadelphia was set aside for the master's use. Peter said it this way, be holy for God is holy. He wants us separate from the world. He wants us set aside for his purposes, that he may use us according to his desire. The second thing he lists here is truth. He who is true. Number two, the second characteristic of Jesus. Truth, again, is well debated in our society today. I cannot tell you the number of conversations that I have had over the years defending the concept of absolute truth. And I I continue to come to the same point of the dialogue and the debate each and every time. They are absolutely convinced that absolute truth doesn't exist. Now, if that's not a contradiction, I don't know what is. But there are truths that are absolute Jesus is the truth that is absolute. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I believe that you cannot even begin to pursue truth apart from the fear of God. Truth begins with God. If you subtract God from truth, you get relativism where truth is whatever the individual's personal experiences dictate. And in a society, when individual truth is determined by personal experience, now what do I mean by that? Meaning as we go through life, we accumulate various uh, experiences, and based upon that accumulation of experiences, we determine what is true to us. Now think about that for a minute. In a lifespan, let's say, of 80 years, how many experiences can you have? And do all of those experiences allow you to draw definitive conclusions about truth? No. It's impossible. It's mathematically impossible that an 80-year-old person can accumulate enough experiences to truly determine what truth is. But to them... That truth has been established because that is what they have experienced. I used this technical uh, example. I call it the Toyota example. Okay, it's very technical, very detailed. Took me about three minutes to come up with, so I put a lot of work into it. The Toyota uh, example, illustration. You go out to purchase a car, and that car, you're looking at various models and makes, you finally go to your friends and say, listen, I'm looking for a new car. What brand do you recommend? And you find that there's a consensus among them that many of them have had good uh, luck. I hate to use that word, Uh, but when it comes to automobiles in Chicago, I guess we call it luck, right? Uh, We've had a good experience with Toyotas. Now that one person says, okay, well, Six out of my ten friends say, Toyota, I'm going to go out and purchase a Toyota. So they go out and purchase a Toyota, and unfortunately, they get the one lemon. They have a terrible experience. Their their immediate conclusion often is that those six friends were wrong. I can't believe I listened to them. I bought a Toyota, and it's terrible. Even though the data supports that Toyotas are incredibly reliable, etc., it doesn't matter. Their experience negates the the evidence that would, would show that it is a reliable vehicle for most people, but their experience trumps all of that and becomes their personal truth. Now, you can see why our society is so fragmented today based on that illustration, right? My personal experiences now are more important than the evidence around me. Now, partly that is due to the fact that we don't know if we can trust the evidence that's being given to us anymore, can we? What we're being fed, what we're being told. And this is a very, very vulnerable position. But we as Christians have something that the world does not have, and that is the Word of God. The Word of God is like an anchor that keeps us securely grounded through the turbulent times of the storms of life. It doesn't allow my experience, my individual experience, to overshadow or supersede the truth of God's Word. Just because I go through a difficult time in life doesn't mean that God isn't good. He is good. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love me. He does love me because his word tells me so. So it gives us a vantage point, a security that Jesus alluded to when he spoke at the end of the Sermon of the Mount that anyone who builds his house upon the rock, when the storms come of life, that house will stand. But the house that's built on the sand, the truth that is derived from personal experience, let's just say it that way, in this case, That house will fall and great will be its fall. So the church of Philadelphia was, number one, set aside and apart for Christ. Number two, they were grounded in God's word. And number three, we have this incredible statement by Jesus that's not found in Revelation chapter 1. He who has the key of David, he who opens... And no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. What is this key of David? Well, this takes us back to the book of Isaiah. And if you haven't personally read the book of Isaiah, may I encourage you to do so? You can do it now, we'll wait. It is so rich, it is so incredibly valuable to the background of all that Christ has done. But in Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two, this is a direct quote from Isaiah. Isaiah writes, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulders, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one will open. So what is this referring to? Of course he's referring to Messiah. It's referring to what he has provided, a open way back to God through him, a door that has been opened that cannot be shut, an opportunity for each and every one of us to turn to Christ for salvation, to be saved. But here in our text, it appears that he is also referring not only to the assurance of their entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but also presenting them with an opportunity. An opportunity for a time such as this. An opportunity that Esther faced when she found herself in the position to be able to go before the king and to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people, even though it may have meant her own life in doing so. For her to come before the king unannounced or uninvited was very, very precarious, to say the least. If he was in a bad mood that day, that could be the end of her life quickly. But he opened his his invitation, welcomed her as she came in, and she was able to intercede on the Jewish people's behalf in the book of Esther. But I love that verse in Esther that says that Esther was prepared for a time such as that, such as this. As I believe, you and I are positioned here and now for a time such as this. I often don't understand God's timing. The one thing I do understand is that God's timing rarely, well, let me be honest, never is according to my timeline. Okay? I have sent agendas to God. I said, Lord, here's my timeline. Uh, just go ahead and implement that and I'll be, we'll be fine, you know. And God says, no, no, that's not, that's not, yeah, no, you're not ready yet. You're not ready yet. I know when I was younger, all my friends started getting married. We were all in that age group. And, you know, they were all getting married before me. And I was better looking than any of them. I didn't understand it. And they were all getting married. And then after they got married, they started having kids. And I was still single. And I'm like, okay, Lord, Something must be happening here. I remember standing up at my last friend's wedding and I said, Lord, I am not going to another church unless I leave with a bride. (laughs) And then I discovered that God's timing was perfect. And when I met my wife, I saw that God's timing was just had me waiting upon him for that perfect one for she had just gotten saved a couple years earlier and he was working in her but more importantly he was working in me for her eric i don't want to give her to you uh, you to her just yet i love her too much to do that eric okay we got to work in you for a little bit before you can be the man that she needs you to be and i realized from that moment god definitely saved the best for last But at that moment, I realized that my timing is not God's timing, because God has more information than I do, and I need to trust by faith in that. But here in our text, this door of opportunity is similar to a door of opportunity that I believe we have today. I don't have to work very hard to convince you that the world appears to be going nuts, doesn't it? But if you look back through history, it's often during these periods of time that God likes to show up in a really, really big way. And did you notice that all the laws that have been passed and everything that happened during COVID and all of the encroaches upon our personal rights and freedoms as Americans, everything that we have noticed occur... Didn't seem to stop for one minute what God wanted to do there in Kentucky, did it? He was going to do what he is going to do, and he doesn't have to ask anyone's permission to do it. And that's what I love about him. So, can God work now? Absolutely, and that's what we're praying for. People are dying, people are so confused today, people are lost, people are hurting, they're lonely. They need the Lord, just as I did in the 80s, and just as you did when you got saved. That hasn't changed, and we are here for a time such as this. And notice, whatever door God opens to us, no one can close. Absolutely no one. So let's go where God is leading us to go. I know your works, he says in verse 8. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. Can the government shut it? Yes or no? No. Can opposition shut it? Can the woke ideology shut it? Can Satan shut it? Nope. Nothing can shut the door that God will open to us, the opportunity that he will present to us. For his purposes and his glory. For you have a little strength. They weren't looking to themselves to fulfill what God was calling them to fulfill. They didn't see the potential in themselves. They were fully dependent upon God. In fact, it would be probably better to say they were fully aware of their personal limitations. They weren't a large group so they weren't going to win by majority. It doesn't appear that they were a wealthy group, so they weren't going to win by their money. They were a small group, seemingly irrelevant to that society. But yet I've noticed that in the mathematical equation, God plus one is always the majority. And if God is in it, then nothing can stand against it. Even Gamaliel said that to the religious leaders when they interrogated John and Peter. And Gamaliel says, well, wait a minute, you know, you guys are missing the fact that if this is truly of God, nothing's going to stop it. Guys, we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. And he's going to pave the way. We just have to be open and available, set apart, established on truth, to position ourselves and prepare ourselves what God may want to do next. Like I said, waiting on God isn't doing nothing. Waiting on God is probably one of the best things that you can do. And then be open to what God may want to do next. One of my favorite lines that you'll see in the movie is when uh, Chuck Smith says, let's see what God has in mind today. And that's truly where our hearts should be also. For you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Understanding the Bible now is no longer optional. We as believers need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need the Bible to create in us what is known as a biblical worldview. To see the world that we are currently in through the lens of Scripture. That's what we need now more than ever for two reasons. Number one, for the purpose of discernment. To be able to discern the lie from the truth. We need the Word of God to do that for us. But the second thing that we need from this is the establishment that it creates within us. The rooting, the grounding, the anchor. So we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes across our path. That we are sure in our convictions that we know what we believe and why we believe it. And regardless on how hard the tempest of the world opinion blows against us, we will stand on the foundation of God's Word. He says, and have not denied my name, which I believe go hand in hand. The denying of Christ is not only done Verbally, as we saw Peter when he was threatened by that incredibly intimidating little girl at the end of the Gospels, Jesus told him it was going to happen, but of course, Peter knew better than God. I personally love Peter, I can identify with him in many ways, okay? He had the gift of foot in mouth, okay? But it's not only verbally. I also believe that we must be conscientious that we can deny God by the manner in which we live. We can deny God by the manner in which we live. Does our life reflect the fact that we are Christians? Oh, we're not perfect. I get it. We're all works in progress and that work is governed by the grace of God. We're all going to fall and make mistakes and sin at times, and God's door is always open to us. His arms are always wide open to us to return. But let us be conscious of the fact and aware of the fact that people are looking at you the moment you say you're a Christian and determining who God is in and through that. Now, you may say, I didn't sign up for that. I just want to go to church, throw a few bucks in the plate, and maybe sing a few songs. That's probably the extent. I don't want to be responsible for that. Well, you know what? God says too bad. God says we're all ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And he has given us his word to know how we should live, what we should do and should not do. But he's gone one step further. He's given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do it. He's given us the Spirit to enable us to cease doing those things that we no longer want to do. And He's also given that same Spirit to us to enable us to do the things that God, has, God wants us to do. As we're sanctified by the Spirit through the Word, that is the pro- progress in which is made in our growth, in our maturity, and in our sanctification in Jesus Christ. But they had not denied him, neither by word nor deed. Indeed, he says in verse 9, I will make those, once again he introduces to us, the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now, again, Judaism was adamantly opposed to this new Christian faith. They called it a sect. It was a sect of the uh, Jewish experience. And they were trying to silence it in every way they could. Paul, of course, known as Saul in the book of Acts, traveled around to various cities trying to stop the movement of the gospel through those cities, arresting people, imprisoning people, even killing people like Stephen. He held the jackets of those who were stoning Stephen for his non-compliance to the religious leaders. However, though... After Paul became a Christian, and he then began to spread the gospel through the various cities around Asia Minor, Jewish individuals came into those cities afterwards. Uh, We call them affectionately Judaizers because they wanted the individuals to become Jews first before they could become Christians. This is what the book of Galatians is written all about. No, no, you have to adhere to all of the commands of Moses, including circumcision, which Of course, for an older gentleman, you would see how committed to God he actually was if he agreed to be circumcised at that age. They didn't have anesthesia. So Paul was fighting on all fronts. He was fighting with the pagan uh, religions. He was fighting the Greek philosophers. And he was also fighting, and I use the word fighting, meaning he was contending with the Jewish legalists. All three of those are mentioned in Colossians chapter 2 for your reference. Jesus says, I see them. I understand the difficulty that they're placing upon you. I see that they want to remove you from the grace, from all that I have established. And eventually, guys, here's what's going to happen. And he gives this incredible verse. It's out of Isaiah, out of Isaiah 60, verse 14. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you and all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet and they shall call you the city of the Lord Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Meaning they're going to realize that they have been working against the truth. They've been working against the truth. As he says here, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Once we understand the love of God, one wrote it this way, we almost become, you know, invincible. We almost become invincible. Oh, they may harm us physically. Physically. But the love of God sustains us spiritually. This is why Paul wrote what he wrote at the end of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate you from the love of God? In the ultimate conclusion, nothing shall ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. That's what moves us, compels us. That's what keeps us moving forward is knowing God's love for us. And for them, it's exactly what they needed to hear again in verse 10 he says because you have kept my command to persevere keep moving forward i also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth interesting verse very debated This is a verse that again would be under the theological category of eschatology, the study of the last days. What does he mean by this verse? There are some who believe that he is simply saying that the members of the church of Philadelphia will be spared anything that occurs in the tribulation. The problem with that, though, is that it talks about the whole world here. Secondly, some believe that this is Uh, God promising them that they will be spared and separate from the people who God is judging during the tribulation period. And many who believe in what's known as the post-trib rapture position say that what God will do is, yes, his church will go through the tribulation period, but God will spare them as he did the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. As the children of Israel were spared in the land of Goshen when the, the, ten, the plagues came upon Egypt. Of course, the last one, they had to paint the doorpost of their house and Passover was established. You know the story. The rapture of the church has always been a debated issue within the church. And there are five positions. I don't know if you're aware of that. or are five different ones. The first one would be what is known as the pre-wrath position, that God will remove his church sometime during the tribulation period, a distinguishing spot within it where it goes from the persecution of Satan, the wrath of Satan, and turns to the wrath of God. We will be spared the wrath of God, but we will have to endure the wrath of Satan This was uh, forwarded by a man named Rosenthal back in the late 90s, but after his book was examined by many, and Reynolds Showers has done the best work. In fact, he's one of the Greek scholars that Rosenthal hired in his book, um, who came back and said, Rosenthal didn't apply my passages properly, and so he wrote a book in response. The pre-wrath position is very hard to, dis, uh, to uh, establish and it's very difficult because it makes an assumption that Matthew 24 is chronological in order. I hope you had your Wheaties this morning. <laughs> okay. The second position is the mid-trib, which isn't really held to any longer by any uh, major denomination or such. Um. And so it's really been replaced by pre-wrath. But in the middle of the tribulation, the three and a half year mark, the church will be then be raptured and taken out. Uh, and so not a lot to get into there because it's not really held too much anymore. The third one is the post-trib, which is very popular today, believing that the church will go through the tribulation but spared, as the Jewish people were spared in the book of Exodus, um, And they believe that the church will be raptured as Jesus is coming down, returning in Revelation 19. We will be taken up, we'll meet him in the air, and then we'll come right back down again to establish the millennial kingdom. However, though, many who believe in a post-tribulation rapture do not believe in a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom. Then there's the fourth. The fourth is they don't believe in a rapture at all. They just dismiss it altogether. There's no such thing. Well, I think that one's very hard to uh, accept because of the various passages that are found in Scripture. And then there's the fifth, the one that I hold to and that we hold to here at Calvary. And we believe the rapture will happen before the seven-year tribulation period. We call this the pre-trib rapture position, it means that God's church will be spared from the tribulation period. And we believe this verse is one that speaks to that. There are two Greek words that are used here. Kept, the word kept in Greek is tereso. And it means to be safely preserved. But then the word from that is found in this verse is the word ek, E-K. And literally it is translated out of. We're going to be safely preserved out of the great tribulation period. Make sense? And that's why I believe that we are going to be removed. And once we are removed with the spirit of God in the capacity that he is working today in and through the church, that will allow for the rise of the Antichrist, which is represented, I believe, by the first white horse of Revelation chapter 6 the arrival of the Antichrist. The arrival of the Antichrist, allowing him to begin to deceive the world as he so sees fit, is the beginning of the wrath of God upon the world. And so that's why I think it is clear. As Paul wrote to us, we are not appointed for wrath. And that's why I believe we're going to be taken before the tribulation happens. Now, is there a prophetic fulfillment needed before the rapture can occur? The answer is no. It could happen right now. Well, I was... Darn, I was hoping. Wouldn't it be awesome to think of... Yeah, if I all jump up when I land, you guys are all going to go off. You know. But no one knows the day or the hour. We don't know when it's going to occur. But what it does for us, it keeps us walking in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. My Lord can come back at any time. So I'm going to live for the glory of God until he does. The rapture of the church, verse 11. Now we're going to get into the seven-year tribulation later on, that time of testing, which is a time of reveal uh, is another word that's going to come upon the whole earth. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. What is he saying? He's referring to the crown that is given at the Bema seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's talking about the reward. How is our reward going to be taken? Well, it's interesting that Paul uses very similar language in 2nd Colossians, 2nd Colossians, let me back up. If your book has 2nd Colossians, can you please return it on your way home? Don't even drop it off at half price books, just get rid of it. Book of Colossians chapter 2 tells us very clearly that Paul was gravely concerned that the philosophies of this world were going to cheat them and rob them of all that Christ had for them. Compromise, corruption, falling into temptation, living for ourselves rather than living for God are all things that can rob us from our crown of reward. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he said that we would go through a time of testing as we, before the Lord passing through fire to see what our works are truly made of. Some are going to be hay, wood, and stubble. Others are going to be precious stones and and precious metals. And those precious stones and precious metals are going to survive that moment of judgment. That's what the word means there for passing through fire, moment of judgment. And from those things, our wreath, our crown is developed. But those things we did for selfish motivations and those things that we did for ourselves and guised it as, you know, disguise it as that for God, those things will be burned up. We'll have nothing to show for. Them. But remember what Jesus said about our treasures. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there also is your heart. So if your treasure is here on this earth, then your heart will be here on this earth. If your treasures are in heaven, then your heart shall be in heaven. In verse 12, And he who overcomes, I make him a pillar, a fixed person in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of, this, uh, of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Now, this is taking us into Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and I'm going to save much of the details of that discussion for then. But I will say this, it has been my experience that this is the most overlooked portion of Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth. Understanding that heaven isn't our ultimate destination. It's the new heaven and new earth. And he is promising to them that your name will be written on the door, meaning that you will be welcomed, fully established, knowing for sure that your entrance into the kingdom of God, the new heaven and the new earth is secure in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. That there's a place for you. As Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house where there are many mansions. I believe he's referring to the spiritual body that we will be given to enjoy all of eternity. And as a result, we can be confident that we have a place. A new name is given to them. It's often found in the New Testament. Remember, he renamed Peter. He renamed Saul to Paul. The new name indicated a new creation. You're a new person. The new name indicated that you're no longer the way you were. You are something brand new. Paul said it this way, knowing this, that all things in the past are behind us. They're gone. All things are brand new. For we are a new creation in Christ. That's what this phrase is indicating. That in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation in him. And we have that assurance of that. And he says here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think it is interesting that as we come now to the faithful church of Revelation, I'm sorry, the faithful church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation, Chuck Swindoll said there are three things that we should remember. First, remember that Insurmountable opportunities turn our attention away from ourselves and back to our God. Number one, meaning this, that when we are seeking those open doors that God has for us, we are more concerned with His will than our will. We're looking and waiting in anticipation for the next open door for Him to provide for us. Paul the apostle talked about open doors a lot in his in his ministry. In 1 Corinthians sixteen eight through 9, he wrote to the Corinthians, But I tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. There's something to know there. Yes, God opens a door, but with that open door often comes adversaries. You know, it's the old adage, and I don't remember which pastor ever said this, but I totally agree with it. When you become serious about God, Satan gets serious about you. So we need to prepare ourselves for that open door. But when that door opens, let us understand that it may not all be smooth sailing down the Willy Wonka chocolate of river, okay? There may be adversaries, as Satan comes to seek in whom he may destroy. But Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 2.12, he said, furthermore, I came to Troas to preach the gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord. This is why I want to assure you, as we prepare ourselves, we're going to do everything that God has asked us to do in his word. Concerning the church, we're going to continue in fellowship, in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread. We're going to continue in these things, the evangelism of the world, our neighborhoods, our home. We're going to continue in all of these things. Therefore, we're moving, and then God will have an easier time moving us in the direction that he wants to take us. You know, it's the old snowball analogy. I was never a big snowball fan, but my wife was a huge snowball fan, and she loved making snowmen. But you know, as well as I do, that that first big one that you put everything on top of, as long as you have it moving, you can take it all around the yard. You can push it this way or that way, frontwards or backwards, as long as it's moving. But once it stops, to get it going again is almost next to impossible. So God has a much easier time moving something that's already moving than trying to move something that's stationary. As we wait on him, it's not that we are just sitting in the pews waiting for God to do something. We're just saying, Lord, we're ready for whatever you want to do. We'll keep doing what you've told us to do until then, until you open that door, but this is what we're going to do. Number two, Chuck Swindoll said, Second, don't forget that insurmountable opportunity forces us to trust completely in the Lord our God. Often God will bring us to door, open doors of impossibility where we're looking through that door and saying, Oh my gosh, I can't walk through there. I don't have that ability. That's going to take thousands of dollars. Lord. I, I don't know what you want to do. I mean, I, I don't have it, Lord. I, I can't speak well. I, I, you know, I look like this. I got a face for radio. What do you want to do? You know? And you immediately summarize that open door based upon your own personal limitations. But God often opens doors that take us beyond our personal limitations. Why? So he can get all the glory for what he does. So whatever door he opens to us, we're going to have to trust him completely to walk through it. And number three, and in closing, notice what he says. So as you look beyond your own current limitations and the doors that God has closed in your life, what other opportunities could you be overlooking? And what he's basically saying is this. Sometimes we get so fixated on those doors that God has closed that we miss the doors that are open. Oh, God, you don't want me to go this way? Okay, fine. That's it. I'm going to take my Bible and just go home. I'm done. But often he closes one door to open another. So if he closes a door, be patient and say, Lord, show me where that open door may be. The Church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, had a golden opportunity before them in the city of Philadelphia. And I believe God has us here for a time such as this because He wants to do something to glorify Him. And I want to be part of it. Don't you? Amen. Amen. Let's